Ellen Broad is a board game designer. But that's not actually why I'm talking to her for Uplink. The board game was something of a byproduct. Her main focus is being a rather brilliant thinker on all things data and AI. In her career, Broad has worked for governments and UN bodies to help plot the future of data, digital issues, and AI ethics. And she's also worked for Australia's digital transformation and innovation body, Data61. She has worked as the head of policy for the Open Data Institute, and today she is a senior fellow at ANU's 3AI Institute. You can also buy her book in all the typical places. It's called Made by Humans, The AI Condition. Here's my uplink with Ellen Broad. So yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. So as a starting place, I thought just explaining what your like elevator or your barbecue version is of of what it is you do when you're trying to explain that to somebody? The easiest thing to say is that I work in artificial intelligence. These days that could mean pretty much anything. (laughs) So the next sentence is usually, I actually have no idea what I do (laughs) or what my expertise is anymore because I've worked across so many different roles under the umbrella of AI. Um, So, yes, it usually goes something like, I work in artificial intelligence. I don't actually quite know what I do anymore or what my expertise is. I spend a lot of time thinking about data and building safe, responsible artificial intelligence and what would that mean and who are the people to help us do that. Mm. I I mean, and that is, that's a great question. Where do you feel like um, a couple of those sort of critical issues are right now when it comes to where where that gap is missing in terms of, you know, what people understand about how data is being used and both, I guess, yeah, on the, the corporate end through to then the consumer end where there's a, there seems like a big gap there in terms of understanding at the moment. So I feel as though we're on a learning journey at the mm. moment um, compared with, say, three years ago when everything was just wonderful and exciting, full of hype, Uh, there does seem to be a growing awareness of the kinds of issues that can be inside automated systems, that data is created by humans, analysed by humans. Yes, we use machines to analyse data, but we still make a whole bunch of decisions about what we're going to do. I think we're in this strange almost paradoxical world at the moment where at the same time we seem to be realizing that data is messy, it has a history, it has a context, actually our lives still revolve around data as in the way that we quantify performance, the things that count in your jobs, the things that count in politics are usually things that can be quantified and measured. So even though we're kind of going... Yeah, data is actually pretty complex and we should think twice before we put it into automated machines and we really need to analyse what that looks like. We still use it to navigate the world. Yeah. And I don't quite know. um, This is where someone probably go, late stage capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) But it does feel like we simultaneously recognise data is problematic but can't see what a future would look like where we didn't rely on it to make all of the decisions. Mm. Actually, on on my way down here, I was listening to a show that was talking about how your ratings measurements work and things like that. And, Mm -hmm. And it always sort of hit me around the idea that, you know, a long time ago, you know, 
a rating was someone just filling out a piece of paper. And you know, now they have like more granular information. And it always seems like the, you know, it's it's like the act of measuring it then changes how the company tries to chase the data points. And clearly that relationship between once we have the measurement, we sometimes get confused about what the best way to do something about it is because sometimes that can end up ruining what was good about something because you think you're chasing the data rather than chasing what made it good. Exactly. And you, there's lots of stories about this in statistical literature, in um, books about random chance, books about quantifying how we deliver lots of different services. I was reading a story yesterday. I can't remember which hospital it was in the UK, but where they started optimizing for um, most operations, most, it wasn't endoscopies. It was, um, their measurement was how many endoscopies can we deliver in the shortest period of time? And the way that they could do that, they realized was by not using a general anesthetic. Mm -hmm. So they, yes, were delivering, they were being much more efficient, (laughs) but the levels of patient discomfort were obviously (laughs) a lot higher. And that's a kind of a famous example used in the statistical literature around, well, when you optimize on one metric, you can actually end up introducing something that's not part of your desired outcome or in other ways, yes, it works for you as a bureaucracy and an administration, but people are being hurt and harmed in the process. Mm. And so what excites you at the moment about the work that you do? You've, you know, you've come here to 3AI. Um, you know, in general, I guess, you know, what do you love about sort of the things you explore? And then, yeah, how is that sort of changing now that you've, you've come here? So what I really like about 3AI is that it feels as though uh, Genevieve is not content to just talk about things. Uh, I think at the moment we're doing a lot of talking about wouldn't it be good if we had responsible AI? Wouldn't it be great if we understood how machines worked? She's created this experimental program that's essentially saying, well, let's pilot a bunch of things uh, with a key focus on education, this kind of, okay, well, we say we want different kinds of people to be part of the way that we design artificial intelligence. Let's just try and do it. Let's bring a bunch of very diverse people together, teach them the basics of computer programming, teach them to critique the systems that they're building and see what they do with it. And it's like being on a constant... um, set of pilot projects trying to envisage like what the future will look like in 10 years. And I'll give you an example that I just keep talking about to everyone is in one of my first weeks here, I sat in on the lab demos from the students and I've sat in on hundreds of lab demos with previous organizations that I've worked in, you know, where you talk about what you've built and what your technical problems were and how you're going to deploy it and what you're going to do with it next. And so the lab demos that I sat in on in the kind of second week of joining, I just kind of thought they'd be like all of the other lab demos that I'd seen. And what I realized was each group got up, they had to build something. So they'd all had to take on roles like uh, image recognition engineer, database engineer, front-end developer. They'd all had to take on these roles and they all had to build systems that functioned. But the way that they talked about what they'd built was very much from this very self-aware, um, we understand 
the limitations that we have imposed on ourselves in choosing this particular technical outcome. So they would say things like, um, well, because we've stored it in the cloud, that compromises our data security, but we had to do that for these reasons. And the way that they would communicate how they designed the thing Mm. was this very, um, these are the trade-offs and this is how we measured those trade-offs. And they all had to talk about how they would decommission the thing later. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's it's, really important, right? That's And, and nobody <laughs> to usually what actually happens, or at least in all the organizations I've worked for, is two years later someone says, uh, is there still a product owner for this thing? Um, what are we going to do with it? Someone's just submitted a GitHub request, but nobody's actually monitoring that repository. And that's usually how hmm. decommissioning works. But there's Nothing. an Amazon bucket of data. Uh, what yeah. are we? <laughs> yeah. I just had never seen decommissioning contemplated from the outset of an engineering project. And that totally reshapes how you design something. So you can obviously tell yeah. that I was very <laughs> excited about it. Um, I, that kind, you know, I just thought, what if in 10 years' time, I don't think in 10 years' time you'd necessarily see every single lab demo looking like that, mm. but you would know the difference between a good and a bad one because the good ones should be thinking holistically about the life cycle of a product and the bad ones won't. Yeah, that's yeah, that's brilliant. Um, so in a much bigger picture sense, you know, what do you feel proudest of in terms of the work that you've done so far in your career? Because you've got a, a sort of a fascinating history of involvement with different data projects and different mm-hmm. sort of aspects, but, yeah, what, what do you feel really stands out for yourself? So can I pick two? You go ahead. Because <laughs> one is like a fun, easy to feel proud of and one was really hard and difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, so definitely one of the projects that I'm most proud of on a personal level was probably building the open data board game, Startopolis, because that was totally, in a way, incidental. It was two of us who had a passion for board games, riffing after work, lunch times. Uh, and then it kind of took on a life of its own. Uh, people started playing it at data-related conferences. We had a graphic designer come and say, I really love it. Can I collaborate with you to turn it into something Brilliant. beautiful? It ended up being played at the National Science Museum. Um, we made it available for a short period of time and it was sold, you know, we sold something like 300 copies in the first seven days, which for a game that essentially costs 150 bucks, it was a really big deal for us. And we saw people forking translations. We created it open source so you could translate cool. it, you could adapt it, you could print it yourselves. And what I love about it is like it was just totally spot, like a completely incidental to our jobs. And yet um, it's now been four years since we created it and I saw that people were playing it at a conference last week and talking about how could they get it and where could they get their hands on it. So I'm proud of that because it was an unexpected triumph Mm. and it's really nice to be able to make something intangible tangible. Yeah. So, so that's like I think an easy one to be proud of. Yeah, it's good. I was because I was actually going to bring up the board game at some point as well. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, one thing that sort of hits me is like, what do you feel like? What you know, what was part of that idea around? Yeah, you know, a board game is going to help someone to do 
X? Like, what was it about the understanding around sort of the, the you know, obviously you still want a game to be fun, but there must have been some, some idea there of, of helping someone to grasp something in a new way because they've had an experience rather than just read a paper or something. Yeah. Um, so one of the OD, so I developed the board game when I was with an organization called the Open Data Institute and I did it with the now CEO, Jenny Tennyson. But one of the kind of real motivations for that institute was um, making complex technical concepts meaningful to ordinary people Mm. so we had a data as culture program so resident artists who produced artworks we had um poets we had um all of our reports and outputs the goal was very much to translate software into formats people could use without needing a lot of technical training so i guess the motivation for the board game kind of came from that space of we spend a lot of time talking to people about data um usually that means in a workshop context that you're all on laptops and um not really talking to each other Hmm. and the way one of the kind of motivations that we had from the very beginning because we were both board game obsessives is we didn't want to build a workshop tool we didn't want to do an educational game (laughs) we wanted to take our favorite board games very successfully because it's an excellent board game (laughs) We Has wanted... it been reviewed on Board Game Geek? So I saw there's an entry on Board oh, Game okay, Geek, right. and I saw that there are some um, five star reviews on GameCraft or what it's where it's sold. Yep. One of those is from me because I was <laughs> testing the system and didn't realize it would publish. Well, I'm the... glad at least you gave yourself I, five stars. I, mean... I, you know, I'm very confident about the skill, uh, the quality of this game. No, um, we really wanted it to be. Um, a real board game yeah. first, an educational second, but then the educational component just came together. The way that it works is you are building different types of services, tools, websites using different kinds of data and the t- data are tiles. So you collaborate kind of like Carcassonne building this infrastructure together and yep. then you have all these events happening in the game that make it harder for you to build. So you have, you know, you've had a data breach um, that has to go back to being closed personal data. Yep. Um, we gave everyone individual roles. So if you were um, a for-profit company, you wanted to incentivize other people opening up their data as much as possible whilst keeping yours closed. <laughs> um, and it just, it actually perhaps much more than we would have hoped it, really gave people a way of talking about the nuances of sharing mm. data and different motivations. And um, one really fascinating, I know I'm talking about this whole thing is now about the board game. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that was really fascinating about it was you could gamify genuine problems in the world of data. Like, So a key mechanic in the game is that you negotiate with each other about sharing data and using data that's on the board. Mm. Um and you could renege on a negotiation. And so someone did once whilst we were playing. They said, yep, yeah, if you if you share your transport data, I will let you build with my health data because um, I can see you want to finish this particular service yeah. and then change their mind. The game broke as in uh, not broke in the sense that you could continue, but everyone stopped trusting each other. Yep. Nobody wanted to negotiate. And another kind of part of the game is that 
you are incentivized to work together because the health of the world you're in is continuously declining. So there's always these environmental issues, societal issues. So you have to work together to keep the health of this fictional town called Sheridan up. Yep. And as soon as trust was lost, they were everyone died within kind of three or four <laughs> moves. So yeah. I remember that game thinking, yeah, this is actually pretty much what happens. Yeah. Stop sharing and collaborating and everything kind of goes to pot. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so then you had another thing you're proud oh, yes. of as well. So this was probably one of those experiences that at the time I think I came home crying a lot going, oh, my God, what have I done? But when I worked for the minister in the UK, Liz Truss, she had set her department this very ambitious data transformation agenda, publishing 8,000 data sets as open data, but that was kind of just a headline metric. But what she really wanted them to do was fundamentally change the way they shared data internally with each other. It was 33 different agencies, 22,000 staff, some of whom were trading funds, so commercial um licensors of data and it was one of those it was nine months no 12 months of essentially bashing my head against a series of brick walls because big change agendas uh, are usually not met with oh we've been waiting for someone to do this <laughs> finally let us out please upend my entire yeah, exactly. routine yeah like oh give me more work to do please <laughs> um and so there will be these frustrating conversations day after day with different parts of this enormous organization, trying to get them to kind of share information with each other, understand what duplicate kind of information they had, reduce costs for themselves. And what I love about it is now it's probably been, yes, six, five or six years since that project. And the people associated with, people still talk about that time in that department across UK government. And the people that were involved still write articles about what it was like being part of that particular change agenda. And you can kind of feel that we've all been through something together. Yeah. So it was really challenging, but um, A, I learned a lot. But, yeah, it's one of those ones that I won't forget. Mm. And so around that sort of whole idea, I guess, of the openness of data and sharing data, I think it seems like sometimes I've sort of seen this, there can be tensions around the idea of, I guess, you know, uh, you know corporations are almost best placed to leverage any data that, you know, they can get their hands on. Um, how, how do we sort of make sure we, we keep that balance in place where, you know, openness of data is, is like is good for society, not just that it becomes a, you know, a, a tool for some people to make money and other people to still not quite get the benefits of it and things like that. It's really hard because at the moment, one of the learning journeys I think we're on as data holders is that actually to maintain data to a good enough quality that someone else can use it costs money and mm -hmm. time. Not so much in terms of, you know, your corporations wanting to make use of it, but if you want information that you use to actually be meaningful and useful to someone else, you have to invest a lot in your metadata. You have to invest a lot in kind of ongoing data maintenance. You really need to have someone who can help users understand how they could use the data that you're providing. And so one of the challenges that quite often I see around the open data narrative is this, we just put it out there on the web. Let, let's fussick around, find some old data that we're not actually using 
and we'll put it out there and then be really surprised that nobody actually uses it and that there's tumbleweeds <laughs> blowing across our data portal. Um, we don't um, – there's a term that you would probably know about um, – eating your own dog food, dog yeah, fooding yeah. in yeah. software engineering. If you try and use your products, you quickly get a sense of how good or bad they are. And I think we need to encourage more of that in data reuse as mm. well because it's not just about open data, data that's openly licensed on the web. Even if you want to get your organization better at sharing data internally with other bits of the business, that requires more than just a... I will attach something to an email and send it to you or you can just find it on our internal CRM. It's just not how it works. Like if you want to value data, you have to put value in it. And unfortunately, I think that's why it ends up being just this kind of realm for big corporates is um, typically they have more resources to expend on data maintenance and quality to the extent that they think about data maintenance and quality, but usually they have more resources. or they're more able to negotiate bilateral data sharing agreements and you are cutting out the kind of small parties altogether. Mm. So hopefully we'll start to appreciate more that data given it's so essential for many automated systems that we need to invest in it as businesses as well, as governments, as society. I mean, just putting out a random Excel spreadsheet of information isn't isn't data. <laughs> well, the one thing that I guess I would clarify is I remember when I was working in the UK, the most downloaded data set from data.gov.uk was the Excel spreadsheet of the contents of the government's wine cellar. <laughs> so not all Excel spreadsheets are bad data. That was a very, very popular data set. <laughs> That's great. And then someone, yeah, they, they turn up to a dinner and they know what to ask for. Yes. If they've been invited. I mean, <laughs> although if you're me, I pro- I wouldn't have known which was the expensive one <laughs> and which wasn't. I'm sure they didn't put that in the spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> um, shifting sort of a little bit towards the sort of the broader AI side of things, I think in that application space, um, you know, what are your thoughts around, you know, I feel like the word algorithms even seems like it's probably, it means 50 different things, 50 different people. So um, you know, we're in that whole side of taking the data and turning it into something that then starts to whether it becomes AI or it becomes, you know, filtered through algorithms as they get talked about. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that sort of whole you know, phase of, of where things move to? So I used to think that we used the term algorithm from a place of a lack of understanding of how systems work. And I was thinking we being the media um, policymakers. Now I increasingly think, maybe I've become really like a conspiracy theorist, but I increasingly think that it's a useful misdirection for organisations building systems that have an impact on human beings if you talk about the algorithm making decisions Mm. and interfering or creating certain outcomes certain feedback loops the algorithm is not the organization and so they are distant in a accountability sense so I used to think oh we just we're all so confused about what an algorithm is and now I think actually those that could help us understand 
exactly what is happening in the context of the design of an artificially intelligent system and and explain how they have put things together. Mm. It is in their interests for us to keep talking about the algorithm and the system instead of um, the organisation delivering this service for us. So... There's a great um, Twitter account, uh, I can't remember her name, where she changes all the news headlines about deaths of women and stories involving women in Australia. Yeah. Where, and it's always like, I fixed, fixed it, for it for you. you. You could do that for headlines with the algorithm is making a decision about um, where you get a job. It's like, yeah. no, someone, someone has built that. An organization has done that. They've loaded a bunch of assumptions into the system that they're building. It doesn't actually matter what method they're using to analyze data. Mm. The method is almost five steps down. It's what do you, what problem do you think you're trying to solve? What are you using this data as a proxy for? Because quite often a lot of the particularly complex scenarios within which we think we can do something with data, like figure out who's the best candidate for a job. Yeah. There is no data that can tell you this is the best candidate for your job. We use lots of proxy measures. Yeah. So there's so many assumptions that the organization or the team makes. So I think, yeah, we've been willing, willfully misled by this language around algorithms. It sort of reminds me of, um, you know, like the era where, you know, everybody started paying attention to the supply chain and the ways in which people were abused in sort of the manufacturing mm-hmm. of products and and it was just, oh, it's a subcontractor. And somehow that sort of meant, oh, we couldn't have known it was subcontracted. It almost reminds me of that idea where people are, oh, well, it's the algorithm and it's proprietary, therefore it's, you know, we'll keep tweaking it and if you just stop worrying about it. But it's like it's, it is a decision being made. It is. And just for today, for example, I was reading a story about um, Facebook's, I don't know if you remember the pilot Facebook ran a couple of years ago where you could upload nudes of yourself to help them combat potential revenge porn. Right. So... Um, and I hate the word revenge porn because they're never photos that are actually shared in that context. But it was a very glowing article about the lengths Facebook is going to to help um, identify and remove intimate content that has been uploaded without someone's consent. And yet at no point in the article, they kept talking about the platform, that these things are uploaded to the platform. Yeah. And unlike other platform providers, you know, and it listed um, Google and YouTube and Twitter that are not taking as great measures to prevent um, the uploading of this intimate content Facebook is. And the whole time I kept thinking, but your your platform, the design of your platform facilitates this. Like it's great that you are going to try and take measures to stop it and prevent it and reduce it, but also the way that it has been made easy and easy to distribute and easy to upload by you as well. Like you are the reason this is possible. (laughs) So it's great that you're now um, designing artificially intelligent methods to try and identify it, but you could also make fundamental changes to your platform. So I do see a lot of... um, Whenever the platform comes out... Yeah. A little spidey sense starts tingling. <laughs> yeah, I look, this week I I sort of finally decided I had to just pull the plug that I couldn't keep, you know, privately condoning sort of, you know, well, you know, just that feeling when you go, oh, I've, I've 
I, I have to stop just forgetting about all the ways in which sort of they've now spent so many years refining their apology more than refining the actual practice, you know. There are things in the world today that are totally changeable. Like we have the power to change them, like that we can live stream um, terrorist attacks as they happen. The way that you make that impossible to do is that you cease to allow unfettered uploading of content um, and then try and pull everything down afterwards. I'm not saying we should do that because that would fundamentally change the way that we share content for lots of positive reasons. But that we are in this discussion at the moment as though humans are doing all of these terrible things and um, we, we're kind of not sure how they happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like we have designed infrastructure that amplifies. That's its purpose is to amplify and encourage clicking and encourage eyeballs. Mm. We also have choice as to whether and what kind of world we want to live in. So unfortunately I have no easy solutions, but yeah. it does drive <laughs> me a little bit nuts that it's like this accepted is given that like this is the world we're in now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, now you've worked in a lot of sort of uh, government-related capacities. I think you're, you're still on the board of an Australian or you work with one of the Australian open data things. Is that right? No. Mm. No. Some data? No, okay. I'm, it must have been the UK sort of open data thing that I got confused with. I did. I was an affiliate with the Open Data Institute Australia Network, right. but um, that has, um, what is the word? It's retired Retired a couple of years ago. Right. As a thing altogether. Yep. Right. Marie, who was fantastic, Marie Adshead, it was one of those situations where you have a community that's run on passion yeah. and working 24-7 and then completely understandably she had to get on with the rest of her life which was <laughs> yeah. I think she's still Queensland's small business leader so it's like she also has a life that she yeah. has to lead yep <laughs> um we're all human we're yeah we, yeah we aren't actually algorithms yet we are humans <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but within the government sort of context I wonder about you know what do you? It feels like sometimes there's this public perception at the moment that you're like, oh, we don't want the government involved with our data, but somehow we're all giving it to corporations to sort of do what they like, and then this this whole debate over, you know, should things be better regulated or not? But you know, what are your thoughts on that idea of you know of people almost feeling more wary of uh, you know of of government being involved with managing sort of you know important private data versus corporations actually being the ones that sort of have have those controls? So I think it comes from a couple of places. One is that um, actually government still has a much more direct role in our lives than most corporations do. People And people typically aren't thinking about government holding and using their data when it's in support of services that will benefit them. Mm. You know, um, pharmaceutical benefits scheme, Medicare data, where um, the National Vaccinations Immunizations Register is my current favorite, having an eight-month-old. <laughs> yeah. That I can look up her immunizations at any point is a wonderful thing. Um, but because government is also the vehicle through which we um, access welfare payments, access parental payments, um, tax, it, it, 
it has a very direct role in our lives that most corporations don't. And therefore, even though I think people feel as fatigued with corporate collection of data, you do not feel the direct hand as much as you do when it's a government department saying, actually, we have this information about you and now you need to do X, Y, Z. So I think people are right to be, um, like, like I, I understand that distinction that people say, well, why, why is it that we're so worried about government when corporates have all of this information too? I think it's because actually, um, you know, a, a, a corporation currently can't stop you from leaving the country <laughs> yeah. or prevent you from getting the payments that you need. Um, but it also does make it very difficult to talk about the good things that happen with data held by government and that um, sometimes if we want to understand how a policy works or the effect of something on citizens, you want to be able to access the data about that thing to understand the effects. So sometimes I think um, it can almost play out like a zero-sum game when we want to ensure safe, restricted access to sensitive information about us whilst ensuring that some public benefit uses can still be supported. And I know those words can have many meanings and we can talk about that forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do we go about, uh, there definitely seems like, and I've seen sort of in some of your work that you, there's definitely focus on this idea of trust and building trust and, you know, getting more ethical frameworks, I guess, around things. But, you know, in that sense of so far it feels like, you know, through this smartphone era that, people just sort of started using things because it was like, oh, cool, it's there and look at all the cool things it does. And and now we've sort of gradually built that understanding of sort of the, you know, that sort of quiet cost of sharing all this information Mm -hmm. Um, almost just through the uncanny targeting of ads and things like that where people are like, well, how did they do that? Um, But now people seem like they're now a little bit more wary about like, well, what am am I going to get? How do I know I can trust this thing with my information? Um, where are we sort of at in that idea of how, whether it's on the government side or on the corporation side, just how we try to make sure that the public can feel trust in the way these things work? Um, it's, it's funny. Just on the weekend, I was thinking about how far our sense of privacy has come, which is I was at a picnic with all babies and all of the parents were taking photos of the babies. And yet the conversation among the parents was, are you okay if I share this with friends, how do you feel about me putting it in a story on social media? How do you feel about me putting it on my social media page? And there was this very casual but negotiated discussion Mm. about privacy that is now just normal among a certain generation. I think for those of us who have grown up on the web, that privacy is something that requires negotiation and isn't just given away, is I think quite a clear expectation. Whereas I remember when I kind of first started working a decade ago, we were talked about as like, we don't care about privacy anymore. All of these (laughs) millennials just putting stuff out there and you should expect that it's going to get used. And I remember there was one article like all these little fame whores like trying to share information when the reality is much more nuanced. And I think now what we're starting to see is Um, kind of a collision of a couple of things. One is like this um, growing sense of privacy is something that should be negotiated and I should be able to have an opinion about data 
concerning me. Um, two, that it is inescapable now. It's no longer, I, I have been using this terrible analogy, which is smoking, like moving from that, well, if you smoke, that's your own fault, to actually other people are harmed by this. Mm. We need to make rules that ensure the society is safe. Yeah. We're starting to do that with privacy because you can't, I cannot prevent information about me from being transmitted by somebody else. So I think we're kind of moving from you are solely responsible for information that's about you to actually as societies we need collective mechanisms to protect citizens and you can see those emerging in different jurisdictions but I genuinely think we are seeing a big mindset shift and it will result in more forms of regulation um, to kind of capture that nuance. Mm. So when people ask you is Facebook listening on my microphone because like they totally, I had a conversation and then totally the next day they showed me exactly that thing. How do you try to explain how, how it's actually even worse than that they listen because it just means that they're so incredibly well in tune with our information that somehow they're able to, <laughs> to give us these uncanny predictions um, just cause I've run out of excuses in my household. You know, my wife every now and then will go, look, look at this one. And I'm like, I'm, you know what? I can't explain anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure they're not listening yeah. through the microphone, but I think people, so um, one of the things that we've talked about here at the Institute quite a lot is um, the lack of awareness people have about basic digital infrastructure, that mm. Facebook does not just have infrastructure kind of tracking how you use their platform. They have infrastructure that monitors how you use other services across the web and that actually many components of the web use this infrastructure. Um, so, so it's not mysterious or magical. It's like actually we have these things mm. like cookies um, yeah. that give constant feedback about what it is that we're looking at and when we looked at it. Um, and so even though it can seem as though a conversation is being listened to, it's like, actually, no, they just have, they're like, actually, we've designed web services to be like big octopuses mm. um, so I, with I tentacles once, everywhere. Yeah, I once heard a great explanation of somebody who was wondering why they had flowers promoted to them when they landed in San Francisco, you know, and it was like this weird thing. And then someone went through the process of, of looking at going, okay, what do you normally do when you get there? It was like, well, yeah, I, I go and visit my mother. And it's like, well, has your mother ever bought flowers on the internet? And it's like, even if she doesn't have a Facebook profile, they could have essentially a shadow profile and they know that you go and visit this person who has in the past bought these things and therefore it would be a good suggestion to you to potentially show you something they like. And it was this kind of such an interconnected web of information, but suddenly you go, yeah, that's even bigger than just if they happen to have my microphone switched on. <laughs> See, my worry is when we start talking about that, that actually we're giving them way too much credit. As in, <laughs> yeah. really, if you think about it, you could construct a data-related story to explain why you get flowers presented to you when you're yeah. in San Francisco. Or it could be something really coincidental, yep. which is um, we have flower advertisers that are willing to pay seven cents per view for this type of Facebook user and it just happens yep. that there's a story. They run it every it. Friday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I almost feel like it is in their favor for us to think that they know everything about us. Yeah. Um, 
when I've also had some really dumb things advertised to me, like, you know, six weeks after buying a mattress, I still get mattress advertisements <laughs> yes. and you're like, I've got one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Mattresses, not as clever as... <laughs> yeah, mattresses are a once in a kind of 10 year purchase. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Don't retarget And it's not reminding me that I could have got a cheaper one. <laughs> um, if you could actually inject sort of one big idea into sort of the you know, mainstream consciousness to help people get what you care about more sort of in a you know, more effective way so we didn't have to keep explaining these things. What do you think that might be? Um, one, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is um, to stop, to start expecting that engineers and teams designing systems that affect our lives have duties to us. Like, we know these concepts exist for other professions, fiduciary duties that, you know, you have certain responsibilities um, that should shape the way that you design a system. Um, whether we define them in law, whether we define them as codes of practice, but to change that public kind of mindset that um, these systems are just built and there's nothing we can do about them. Mm. And then they in, interact with us in these ways to actually our fellow citizens have obligations to us to think about the effects that their designs have on our lives. I really think just that mindset shift of like, oh, they are responsible for fundamental infrastructure that inter, kind of has a massive role in my day-to-day -day life. I should expect more of them. I think if we could get to that tipping point, we hopefully will see a much healthier and kind of safer way of building cyber physical systems to scale because that we don't expect things is I think our biggest downfall at the moment. Mm. So I and there's lots of ways we can introduce that. But for me, that is a really big one um, that our culture and I know um, a word that I didn't really understand before coming to the 3A was cybernetics. And in fact, before joining, I was like, do we have to use the word cybernetics? This is a really space agey sounding word. <laughs> but then when I started reading about it and um, reading about Norman Viner and the origins of cybernetics, but also that this word kind of takes its origins from ancient Greek meaning steersmanship or steerspersonship. But this approach to the way that you design technology being about you're guiding something and you need to be aware of what's around you. It's like if we cultivated that in our professionals, that mm. you're a steers, you're a helms person, not uh, an earth mover, yeah. how different would things look? Mm. And so what gives you hope that, there are solutions to these problems in the next few years. So, I mean, I have to say, well, organizations like 3AI <laughs> exist, but I mean, genuinely, I, I think that's really exciting. I also do see um, it, what excites me is that it's quite clear that um, the narrative has changed around disruptive technologies mm. and that from many angles, there is starting to be closer scrutiny of the systems that interact with us day to day and also that that has a palpable shift in who wants to work for certain companies. Yeah. Um, and you have more professionals saying we don't want to work 
for these organisations, we want our skills to be used elsewhere. So you can kind of see this shift occurring everywhere from education um, and in kind of uh, what's the word envelope envelope pushing is that the term the yeah, we can, yeah. edge pushing yeah. organizations like 3a that are kind of pushing the boat out a little bit further but also just from the um, ways that you hear fellow engineers and computer scientists talk about what they want to do and where they want to work it's no longer I think really seen as the cool thing to be in a room, never interacting with humans, with no interest in what the messy humans have to do with a system. Mm. I think there's a sense of, oh, actually, we've got to be a bit more professional than this. Yeah. So that excites me. I mean, if the 2010s were defined by move fast and break things, maybe the 2020s will be... We'll move a little bit slower. I had, Don't there, break quite so much. There was a great quote from, um, I was on a panel with Dr. Luke Oakden Rayner, who's a radiologist and a machine learning researcher. So right. one of those few people in the world who is both extremely knowledgeable on the kind of artificial intelligence side, but has been a practicing radiologist for years. So in diagnostic AI, just talks about, well, this is what labels mean and this is what's challenging. But he said um, in medical, um, in the medical profession, we move slowly and test. I think that's what he's saying. He was like, instead of move fast and break things, it was move slowly and test. That's great. So maybe the 2020s will be move slowly and test. 